Well, I've got some good news and some bad news that I'd like to start with this morning. First, the good news. Today, the divorce rate in America is the lowest it's been since the 1980s. That's good news. Now, the bad news. Divorces have declined because 20-somethings aren't getting married. Millennials are either avoiding or delaying marriage. Divorce rates have decreased because there aren't as many marriages today. Believe it or not, barely half of Americans are married. You see, the children of baby boomers have seen the ravaging effects of divorce up close and personal. Many have experienced the damaging impacts firsthand. They've been wounded and scarred by their parents' divorce. They're now scared that they might duplicate the tragedy. Surveys show that most millennials still aspire to marriage in their future, but their reluctance to get married right now reveals their fears, their insecurities. They worry about whether they can succeed at marriage. Recently, Kathy and I, we celebrated our 35th anniversary. Kathy posted the achievement on Facebook, and we received tons of congratulations. But one of the comments stood out. It was brief, but it did make me think, It was my daughter who wrote, thanks for making it look easy. When I read Natalie's post, my first reaction was, we must have fought quieter than I thought that we did. (laughs) Or she's a really sound sleeper. One thing is for sure, it hasn't been easy. Kathy and I have had our share of ups and downs, but we've stuck it out. At times, we have made our marriage work. When you reach the end of the rope, you tie a big knot and you hang on until God comes to the rescue. And He always has in our marriage. I think our kids and their spouses have seen us so much so that they've come to the conclusion that there's no such thing as a perfect marriage. But I think they also know that by God's grace, marriage is doable. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 through 16, Paul is answering questions that have been asked of him in a previous correspondence. In chapter 7, he tackles questions concerning personal relationships, singleness, marriage, and now divorce. Remember, the city of Corinth was a decadent town. Lust was integral to even their religion. Corinth was known for its temple to Aphrodite, the fertility goddess. And thus vice and sex and prostitution were actually part of Corinth's worship. And the Christians in this city were refugees of a moral disaster. You remember back in chapter 6, verse 9, there Paul lists fornicators, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites. Then he says, and such were some of you. But you are washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. What a marvelous statement. And such were some of you. Yes, they had been caught up in that quagmire of sin, but they had come out. They had been saved. They had been washed. They were now changed. The Corinthians were now recipients of God's grace. They were new people, radically transformed by Jesus. Hey, in this church, there were repentant adulterers trying to reconcile with their spouse. 
People with same-sex attraction were forging a new identity and learning to embrace the gender that God assigned them. Singles who formerly had casual sex were now treating each other with a new respect and learning self-control. Hey, the Corinthians, the Christians in Corinth, they were scarred. They were wounded. Their life was messy. They carried some baggage. But they were trying to work things out and unravel their lives and live according to God's wisdom. Righteous relationships were a new concept. That's why on the learning curve, they were at ground level. You know, as a pastor who has now counseled countless couples over the years, one of the biggest lessons that I've learned is that sin complicates. Sin complicates. It twists lives and relationships and creates situations that are tough to unravel and navigate. It's true. The easiest easiest path is always the straight and narrow. Sin contorts us in ways that we were never meant to bend. The Corinthians were now committed to Jesus. They wanted to live life by God's wisdom, especially in their most intimate relationships, but they didn't know how. And thus, Paul provides them important guidance here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now remember too, in chapter 6, the Corinthians were ruining their witness. This was another big issue to Paul. Church members were taking each other to court, acting no better than the pagans in town. This was also the issue when it came to marriage and divorce. How can Christians talk authentically of the love and the unity that is ours in Christ if they can't stay married? And to me, this is a major issue for Christians today. This past June, the United States Supreme Court ruled that the 50 states can no longer outlaw same-sex marriage. And when the ruling came down, evangelical Christians were up in arms. This was an attack on biblical marriage. What is going to happen to the institution of marriage in our country? But I'll never forget my wife's response. She said, why are we worried about a few homosexuals getting married when over 30% of evangelical Christians end up divorced? According to George Barna, a Christian pollster, the divorce rate is actually higher among folks claiming to be born-again Christians than among people who identify themselves as agnostics or atheists. That's shameful. I'm not belittling the impact of the Supreme Court's decision on the sanctity of marriage, but it's largely symbolic. The real damage to the institution of marriage is being done by Christians and by churches who are flipping about our commitments and are too tolerant of divorce. According to Christianity Today, only 22% of Americans believe that divorce is a sin. And of evangelical Protestants, the number is only 34%. How can we say that when the Bible declares God hates divorce? How can we tell the world that Jesus has the power to reconcile people to God and to each other if married Christians don't have the wherewithal to stick together? If there's forgiveness in Christ, why is it so hard for us to forgive one another? If there's power in the Spirit, why can't we endure? If there's unity in Jesus' name, why not work through our problems rather than simply calling it quits? These are all questions that we should ponder. Did you hear about the woman who had been married to four men? 
Her first husband was a millionaire. Her second husband had been a film producer. Her third hubby was a butler, and her fourth husband was a funeral director. A millionaire, a filmmaker, a butler, a mortician. Of course, the gal, she had a perfectly fine explanation for her choices in men. She said, one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, and four to go. Well, Well, believe it or not, that could be a good lead-in to verses 10 through 16. For here Paul addresses married people who find themselves in four different situations. Verse 10 speaks to folks who are married. Verse 11, to married people who are separated. Verses 12 to 14 and then verse 16 are directed to the believer who is married to an unbeliever that wants to remain married. And then in verse 15 is to a believer in Christ whose spouse refuses to stay married and departs the relationship. Now in verse 10, Paul embarks on this thorny subject of divorce. He says, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. Now here is the divine ideal. God's blueprint for marriage is one man and one woman in a lifelong relationship. Notice Paul frames this as a command, not as a suggestion. And it's from the Lord himself, not just Paul. Neither spouse is to abandon their marriage. Malachi 2 verse 16, the verse I referred to earlier, clarifies once and for all God's attitude toward divorce. The Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. That's definitely the sentiment that Paul echoes here. God knows the pain and damage caused by divorce. You know, people who get divorced, they think of it as a simple sniper shot. That it's only going to impact one person. In reality, divorce is like a pipe bomb blast. It bruises and rips and tears to shreds everything in its vicinity. Kids and families and churches and even society at large. This is one reason God hates it so. Recently, pop singer Jewel, she split with her husband of six years, and she referred to her divorce as a tender undoing. She said she felt stifled and needed to grow again. Well, I'm sorry, but that is not how God ever refers to divorce. In his eyes, there is nothing tender about it. It is anything but tender Malachi chapter 2 goes on to say of divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence. God sees it as a violent act, not as something tender. The word Malachi translates divorce implies an amputation. The root word means a cutting off. Author C.S. Lewis said this about divorce, Christians all regard divorce as something like cutting up a living body as kind of a surgical operation. Some think that the operation is so violent that it cannot be done at all. Others admit that it is a desperate remedy in extreme cases. They are all agreed that it is more like having your legs cut off than it is like dissolving a business partnership. This too is a reason that God hates divorce. And this is why Paul writes in verse 11, 
But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Here the word translated depart, it means to put room between or to create some space. Ordinarily, a married couple should live together, share a home together, participate in life together. But there may be an occasion when a husband or a wife needs a little breathing room. Tensions get high. The environment becomes toxic. The shouting and the tempers are both, of both spouses are unsafe for the children. And when this happens, a temporary situation is what's called for. But when a couple separates, it should be for one reason. That's to regroup for another shot at reconciliation. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus said that if a person divorces his spouse on unbiblical grounds and then marries another person, that they have committed adultery. Actually, two sins are involved. The divorce and then the adultery. Here Paul says that if you separate, don't compound the problem by hooking up with someone else and committing adultery. Either remain alone or be reconciled to your spouse. If you separate from your spouse, it should not be to plan an exit strategy or to explore other possibilities or to think through excuses for quitting or, God forbid, date other people. It should be temporary and only for restarting your marriage. One Sunday morning, a church member was celebrating he and his wife's 50th wedding anniversary. The pastor invited Joe onto the platform. He said, Joe, man, this is such an accomplishment. What's the key to, to such a long marriage? Joe answered, he said, well, my wife and I, we like to travel. We, we've actually traveled the world. The pastor asked Joe for an example. He said, well, he said, on our 25th wedding anniversary, we went to Beijing, China. Oh, the congregation, they ooed, they awed. Wow, Beijing, China. Well, the pastor asked him again. He said, well, where are you going on your 50th anniversary? Joe answered, back to Beijing to pick her up. (laughs) Well, this is not the kind of separation that Paul is considering here. He's telling us maybe some room to breathe, but not a virtual divorce. Reminds me of the famous quote by Ruth Graham, wife of Evangelist Billy. You know, Ruth was asked if she ever considered divorce. She answered, divorce, no. Murder, yes. (laughs) Divorce should never be on the table. I'll never forget counseling a couple one time who were always threatening each other with the D word. They were always bringing it up, always threatening each other. I told them they would never have a committed marriage if they kept putting its permanence on the chopping block. And that's true. They needed to find another way to threaten each other, (laughs) but not with divorce. You know, likewise, some of you need to to nail this down. You need to decide once and for all. You need to agree with each other once and for all that we're not going to get a divorce. We are going to stay married. Sometimes problems come up, and the only way you can work through them is if you've got no other choice. In the darkest days of World War II, Winston Churchill reminded the British people, wars are not won by evacuation, and neither are good marriages. 
A temporary situation to regroup is okay, but either remain alone or be reconciled. Understand, if you divorce your spouse for a reason that is not recognized biblically, God considers it a sin. Verse 12 tells us, But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Now first, don't trip up over Paul's phraseology here. Several times in this chapter, Paul sounds as if he's qualifying or downgrading his counsel from divine inspiration to human opinion. That is not what the apostle means. If what Paul penned wasn't inspired scripture, if it wasn't inspired by the Holy Spirit, it wouldn't be in the pages of sacred scripture. You see, generally speaking, Paul's writings ran parallel to the teachings of Jesus. But there were some subjects that Paul addressed that Jesus never dealt with, or at least directly. And here's a good example. Jesus couldn't comment on believers married to unbelievers. Because for most of his ministry, no one believed in him. No one was what we would call a believer. Even his own disciples didn't truly believe in him until after his resurrection. Jesus lacked the opportunity to speak on this subject, and thus Paul couldn't write, Thus saith the Lord. And yet the Corinthians desperately needed godly wisdom on these matters, and so through the process of biblical inspiration, God provided the Corinthians the counsel they needed through the pen of Paul and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And here's Paul's instructions to these Corinthians. If you're a believer in Jesus and you're married to an unbeliever, just because your unbelieving spouse rejects the Lord doesn't give you the right to reject them. If she or she wants to remain married, then stay married. Will it be difficult? Yes. Problematic? I'm sure. Lonely at times? Perhaps frustrating? More than you realize. But if your unbelieving spouse wants to stay married to you, then by all means, you need to stay married to them. You need to love your spouse. Now, of course, you might be thinking, how did this happen in the first place? How did a believer get married to an unbeliever? 2 Corinthians chapter 6 teaches that a believer in Jesus should never marry an unbeliever. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 uses the picture of a yoke. Not that one. That one. There you go. A farmer's yoke was constructed to force the animals to work together. The yoke would choke the animal who pulled ahead and pinch the one that lagged behind. The yoke was made to force them to work together. And that's why it was easier on the animals for them to be, for two of the same breed to be yoked together. If you mixed a donkey with an ox, you would be ensuring friction, frustration. Different species had different natures that pulled them apart and that would fight against each other. And likewise, a believer and an unbeliever are separate species, different breeds with different natures. A believer has been born of God, alive to the things of the Spirit, whereas the unbeliever 
even though he might be a nice guy or a nice gal, they're still dead in sin and unaware of the things of the Spirit. You put two breeds of different natures in the same yoke, whether that yoke be a marriage or a business or maybe a roommate situation or a serious dating relationship, and it's going to produce conflict and frustration. Oh, at first the two parties might be able to get along, but over time they're going to inevitably move in separate directions. They're going to pinch or choke the other. The yoke is going to cause pain. There's an old Puritan proverb that puts it, if you're a child of God and you marry a child of the devil, you're going to have problems with your father-in-law. And let me ask you, what would be the best way to make sure you don't marry an unbeliever? How about not dating him? I heard that there's a sign at the start of the Alaskan Highway. It reads, choose your rut carefully. You will be in it for the next 200 miles. And that's the same when it comes to marriage. If you're single, be careful who you marry. Christian marriage is until death do you part, whether it makes you happy all the time or not. Any two people are going to have their share of differences. So why ignore the main difference, the very thing that makes you tick? If you're a Christian married to a non-Christian, you have a huge treasure that you won't be able to share with your spouse. This is painful. This creates a disconnect. You don't click in this important matter. Why invite that kind of conflict from the start? Yet here the phenomena that had happened in Corinth had also happened in other cities there in the first century. It was a common problem. Many of the initial Christians were married before they heard the gospel. This was the first generation to hear the gospel. Some people had been married for many years. Here's what would happen. Somebody would come to town. They would preach the good news. A person would embrace Christ. Instantly, he or she would go from darkness to life. Their life would radically change. But that was them, not their spouse. And all of a sudden, this unbeliever realizes that they're now married to a different person. And they were. This happened to many, many a marriage in the first century. In fact, Christianity became a wedge between husbands and wives. It was often a source of division, not just unity. And Jesus foresaw that this would happen. You remember he predicted in Matthew chapter 10. He says, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. If faced with the choice of obeying Jesus or appeasing your unsaved spouse, you have to remain loyal to Jesus. But anything short of that, and God calls the believer to bend over backwards for the unbeliever. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 3, it says that the goal of the believer should be to win their unbelieving spouse without a word. I like that. Just with your love, your integrity, your good conduct, 
you should be able to influence your unbelieving spouse and hopefully win them to Christ. And here's why the believing spouse should remain married to their spouse. Verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Now understand what Paul is not saying here. He's not teaching that the unbelieving spouse or their kids will get to heaven on the believer's coattails. Not at all. That's not how salvation works. No one gets saved by association. Here, he says that the unbeliever is sanctified by the believer. The words sanctified and holy are from the same Greek word hagios, which means to set apart. The word here speaks of position and opportunity. Paul is saying that when a believer remains married to an unbeliever, the light of God continues to shine into the dark life of that unbeliever and into the lives of the kids. Christian witness and wisdom remain a constant influence. The Christian in the family makes up for the unbeliever's lack of insight and affords some spiritual safety. In the end, the Christian's presence greatly enhances the likelihood of their spouse and children coming to know the Lord and getting saved, having their sins forgiven. A believer can have a huge role even if their spouse isn't on the same page. Of course, the marriage between a believer and an unbeliever, will it be tough? Absolutely. She wants to go to church. He doesn't. He wants to stay home. He feels led to give financially. She says, not with my money. She stops drinking with him. He stops hanging out with her. They pull against each other. If you're a believer wed to an unbeliever, marriage is like a three-legged race. Think of a six-foot-two father tied to a four-foot-six child. Oh, it's hilarious to watch such a mismatched combination run, unless you're the one doing the running. And then it can be painful. The two of them will stumble all the way. But this is what every day looks like for a believer married to an unbeliever. This is a mismatched couple. Imagine being attached to a person of uneven stature and unequal stamina. Life isn't going to be easy. Yet if living this life means the eternal salvation of your spouse and your family, then it is certainly worth it. For some of you, this is what you deal with daily. In fact, your spouse hassled you about coming to church this morning. Let me encourage you to stick with it. God will give you grace and strength. He'll give you what you need to endure. Just lean in on Him. Just trust Him. In fact, before Paul closes this section, he challenges his readers one more time to consider their vital role. Jump down to verse 16. He says, For for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? In other words, the possibility of their salvation is certainly worth the effort. But what if a believer is married to an unbeliever who doesn't want to run this three-legged race? Well, verse 15 addresses this. He says, But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. 
So if the unbelieving spouse abandons you, a believing spouse, and, and, and by the way, not because you ran him off with your nagging, not because you acted like a jerk so she'd leave. No, because of your faith, because of your godly conduct, then you are under no bondage. You're not under bondage in the situation. In other words, a Christian isn't bound to a spouse who doesn't want to remain bound to them. If the unbeliever splits, the believer doesn't have to wait around forever. He or she is now free to move on with their life. And so... Let me summarize the Bible's teaching on divorce and remarriage. There are only two situations where God permits someone to divorce and then to remarry another person. And let me first say what these exceptions are not. In-law problems? Nope. Income problems? Nope. Incompatibility problems? Sorry. Insensitivity problems, nope. Intimacy problems, not hardly. None of these are biblical justifications for divorce. The Bible only condones divorce in two cases. The first is found in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. There Jesus tells us, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Here's an exception. Sexual immorality. The Greek term is pornea. It includes all kinds of illicit sexual activity. Premarital sex, homosexuality, adultery, pornography, etc., etc. If a spouse is sexually unfaithful on a perpetual basis, the offended spouse is free to divorce them and to remarry. Understand, this is not a command. The victim can choose to forgive the guilty party, to restore the marriage, to work on it. And if that's your choice, then forgive them and do your best to start over. You know, I've seen this happen. I've seen a, a, a spouse decide to forgive their mate's infidelity, to really work on the marriage. I've seen beautiful things happen. It can happen. It can be restored. God is powerful in that way. He can do that. It's a demonstration of God's amazing grace when it happens. But in no one's case is it mandatory. The offended spouse has every right to divorce the the offender and then move on. In fact, in the Old Testament, an adulterer would have been taken out and stoned to death. This would have made the victim of their sin a widow or a widower and thus free to remarry. In the New Testament, Jesus shows mercy on the adulterer but he still affords the victim the same freedom to start over. The second scenario where God permits divorce and remarriage is what we have looked at today. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace The second biblical justification for divorce and remarriage is desertion. If you are deserted by your spouse because of your faith in Jesus, because of your righteous conduct, then you have the prerogative to move on and remarry in the will of God. But again, be careful how you define desertion. 
A husband who ignores his wife during football season and spends too much time with his remote control is guilty of insensitivity, but not desertion. A wife who spends too much money at the mall may be disrespectful, but she hasn't departed the marriage. Desertion is to behave in a way that indicates you don't want to be in the marriage any longer. If an unbelieving spouse departs the marriage, then God doesn't require the believer to stay celibate the rest of his or her life. The believer can move on and remarry. Certainly, it's desertion if the unbeliever packs up boxes and moves out and takes the dog and leaves a fording address and files divorce papers. That's pretty easy to identify. But are there more egregious betrayals that also count as desertion? This is my opinion, but I believe there are. I believe that a husband who physically abuses his wife or kids is saying he no longer wants to be in the marriage. He may not have left physically, but in his heart he has checked out. A wife who is addicted to drugs, neglects her family, refuses to get help. Has she departed her family? Her emotional desertion may be worse than her leaving town. There are people who come home every night. Why? Because they like a good meal. They enjoy sleeping with a roof, a dry roof over their head. But that doesn't mean they haven't bailed on their family. After pastoring 35 years, I've concluded it's possible for a spouse to desert a marriage without actually vacating the premises and filing the divorce papers. I want to mention one more scenario. Paul doesn't bring this up in our text, but I think it's relevant to our topic. What if you did divorce your spouse on unbiblical grounds? There was no sexual immorality. Your spouse wanted to be married to you. It was you who pressed the issue. It was you who wanted to move on. You felt stifled. You got irritated. You weren't happy. You got bored and wanted to spice up your life a little bit. And looking back on it now, you realize you didn't have a biblical basis. And the choice you made was a sin. Perhaps now you're remarried. And according to Jesus, you and your spouse have committed adultery. What now? Well, here's what you do. You treat divorce and adultery like you treat every other sin. You don't ignore it. You don't hide it. You don't try to rename it. No, you confess it for what it is. And you ask God to forgive you. And if you do, the Bible promises He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus will forgive you fully and freely. Old things passed away. All things become new. Remember the woman caught in adultery in the very act. Jesus refused to bring condemnation on this woman. He loved her and forgave her and offered her a brand new start. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And that's what he says to us. Does this mean that a person who's been forgiven can then move on and remarry? I believe it does. My Bible tells me that what God forgives, He forgets. The people of Jerusalem in the time of Jeremiah, 
They had gone to bed with idols, with false gods. They had committed spiritual adultery. But in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 21, God refers to His pardoned people as, O virgin of Israel. How's that for cleansing one's sin? God gave His people a brand new start, even virgin status. If your divorce is recent, if neither you or your ex-spouse have remarried, and you can repair the damage that you've done, then I believe a repentant heart will try to reconcile. You, you owe it that. But if some time has elapsed, and if for whatever reason reconciliation is now out of the question, then if you're truly repentant, can you start over? Can you begin again? Even remarry? I believe in grace, and that's why I believe you can. It's not because of what you've done isn't serious. It's because God's grace is full and it's free and it's final. But here's what you can't do. Listen, here's what you can't do. You can't remarry if you're still trying to justify an unbiblical divorce. You're free to start over only after you've admitted and learned from the mistakes that you've made. Here's how I like to put it. You can't start a new sentence until you first put a period on the old sentence. See, some, so many people, they live their lives like a run-on sentence. They go from spouse to spouse and marriage to marriage without ever admitting their sin. God doesn't want you to embark on a new marriage if you haven't learned from the old marriage and, and learned to see it from God's perspective. If you were divorced on unbiblical grounds, admit it. Change your attitude and vow not to do it again. And if you are marrying someone who has been divorced, make sure that they're not carrying over into the new marriage ungodly attitudes from their previous marriage. Trust me, if they divorced a former spouse unbiblically, what makes you think that they won't do it to a future spouse? Many years ago, a very, as a very young pastor... I, I was approached by a couple who had been divorced from previous spouses and now wanted to remarry each other. I didn't know what to do. This is a complicated issue. I didn't know what stand to take. And so I called a local Baptist pastor who I respected highly. He, he had attended, we had attended his church previously. And, and I called him and I asked him for his advice. He told me that early in his ministry, he had decided not to marry divorcees under any circumstance. And then he said, Sandy, that was the worst decision that I've made in my ministry. He explained why. I wish now that I had taken each case individually and helped folks apply God's grace to their situation. And I thought, wow, that's what I want to do. I read this past week, that 42 million Americans have been married more than once. And I would imagine that of those 42 million, there are a few here this morning. I don't want to condemn you. Please don't think I want to condemn you. What I want to do, though, is challenge you. In Christ, there is forgiveness, there is freedom, there is fresh starts. But all these things are preceded by repentance. Don't keep carrying over a sinful attitude from relationship to relationship. You need to put a period on your past mistakes. 
You need to come out of this world and have the courage to see life, even your past choices, in light of God's Word. The truth will set you free. Perhaps you're in a marriage that you've always wondered if this was really right. A black cloud sort of hangs over your head even today. Well, today you can make it right. You can make your marriage right. Your marriage might have started in sin, but it doesn't have to continue in sin. You can ask God for His forgiveness. You can dedicate your marriage to Him today, regardless of the circumstances that were involved in its beginning. You can dedicate it to Him today. You can let God sanctify it, and you can turn it into a testimony of His grace. You can do that today. If you're married, stay married. If you're separated, seek to reconcile. If you're married to an unbeliever, pray for their soul and be a good spouse. And if you're free to remarry, either through your former spouse's actions or through God's forgiveness, then make good decisions moving forward. For it's God's desire that we all view marriage in a way that will bring Him glory.